It's just after midnight, Monday, May 23rd, 2022, and you are listening to another edition of The Midnight Ride with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Paul, I hope your week was better than my stock market portfolio. Yeah, the stock market portfolio is not doing well at all. You did forget to mention, though, what the midnight ride is. Don't you remember? We are the home for misinformation, disinformation, and the truth. (laughs) You are listening to the midnight ride. You're home for misinformation, disinformation, and that's also known as the truth. And speaking of misinformation, the one good thing as our, as we watched our, our working life extend by five years, our retirements evaporating under Joe Biden, who by the way, is now for the totality of his presidency, the Dow is in the negative since he took over. Donald Trump sort of prophesized that. He said that stock markets will tank. Maybe he was right about that. But the good news is that the Ministry of Truth could be dead. Scary Poppins is out. She resigned. And that is good. Remember, that was in response. The the government standing up this Ministry of Truth was in response to the purchase of or the attempted purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk. And this past week, that could even be in doubt, as Musk said, hey, listen, 20% bots, that's not what you told me. But Elon Musk has been all over the news this week, Paul. He really has. And it's caused me almost to be in a state of repent. I had to go to confession this week. I own a Tesla. And I just, I feel awful about it that I own that. I I feel like I owe reparations to (laughs) non-Tesla owners. I I had no idea that that Tesla itself was so harmful to the environment, the social justice movement, racial and pay equity, LGBTQ plus individuals. And I just feel awful that I own that car. It must just be such a terrible thing. Oh my goodness. But by the way, you did confession. Did you take communion? I'm still allowed to take communion because I am pro-life. <laughs> That's right. Nancy Pelosi, you're out. Maybe Joe Biden is next. It's interesting, Paul, that you you mentioned that about the environmental and social governance score. You would have thought that Elon Musk and specifically Tesla Corporation would have been the darlings of the ESG, what should we call this, the ESG industry, because Tesla has taken a lot of carbon-burning vehicles off the road, have they not? They certainly have. Uh, In fact, Tesla has led the entire industry toward electrification and weaning the world off of fossil fuels. They're one of the world's leading providers of solar energy and solar power, battery storage, renewable energy. They even pay for out-of-state abortions for their staff, so you'd think they'd be darlings of the left. And somehow... They've run afoul of ESG, and I'm going to get into what ESG is in a second. I I pulled up some information from Harvard Law and ready to do one of the patented Paul Runyon lessons. But something really interesting happened on the way to this debacle with Tesla. And it was a tweet by Elon Musk that said a number of quotes starting, and it's sort of out of order here, but I'm going to read you some quotes. The Democratic Party is overly controlled by the unions and the trial lawyers, particularly the class action lawyers. In the past, I voted Democrat because they were mostly the kindness party, but they've become the party of division and hate. So I can no longer support them and will vote Republican. Now, watch their dirty tricks campaign against me unfold. The attacks against me should be viewed through a political lens. This is their standard despicable playbook. 
but nothing will deter me from fighting for a good future and for your right to free speech. And after those quotes from Elon, boy, did the Dirty Tricks campaign begin. Well, yeah, let's just, I mean, unlike Jeff Bezos, who did actually come out of the woodwork with a tweet after the absurdity what happened with the the new diversity hire at the White House Office of Communications was asked by Peter Ducey about President Biden's tweet saying to, to cut inflation, we need to raise taxes on corporations. Jeff Bezos came out and said, come on, man. And that's the only thing you'll hit. Come on, man. Come on, man. Here's the deal. Yeah. But I mean, you know, that was at least him saying, look, you, that's stupid. Number one, it's not going to it's not going to cut anybody's inflation, but at least he was acting out of self-interest. He, otherwise, he's he's in the back printing money and making his sinister evil plans. Uh, Bill Gates, for all we know, is, is on another plane down to the Dominican. Who knows? But Elon Musk is very high profile. And just in the last couple months, he announced plans to buy Twitter. He called out the federal government in the tweets you mentioned, but uh, numerous other times just saying that, you know, these guys have no clue. He ripped the ESG score that Tesla just recently received, and then he made those comments about the Democratic Party. And, and the Democratic Party is losing voters left and right out of all of their key demos. And, you know, this isn't good, but he was absolutely right. And so he made those comments, I want to say, on a Wednesday or a Thursday. What happened Friday, Paul? Well, on Friday, a unverified report about a flight attendant who worked for SpaceX was claimed that she was propositioned by Musk as she was giving him a massage on the jet where he allegedly exposed an, a body part that was in the erect position. Kids, close your ears. And because of that, was offered $250,000 severance to leave the company and sign the NDA. Offered and accepted, right? Offered and accepted. This woman is not making these claims. No, it was a, it was a friend, a, a supposed friend that released this. This is sounding awfully familiar to the Brett Kavanaugh situation. Uh, it's almost like Elon Musk is being turned into Brett Kavanaugh, Mike Lindell, and John D. Rockefeller at the same time. I don't think any of this is going to work because people sort of see right through this, the Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh thing, the timing of this and the fact that, I mean, $250,000, come on, this is the richest guy in the world. If anything happened, I think it would have been significantly more than that. We don't know what happened or if anything happened. All we know is that they released this the day that their, their feelings get hurt. And Elon Musk, he has a lot of Cachet. He has a lot of credibility with with a lot of people. Certainly, he does here at the Midnight Ride. So when he says, when he speaks the truth and says the Democrats are the party of division, you know that that struck a nerve there uh, inside the Beltway. I don't think they can hurt him in this way. But the ESG thing, Paul, it could hurt the value of Tesla. It could. ESG has an interesting history, and I went I went over to talk to our good friends at Harvard Law, and I got a. A, a description of what it is from their background. All right, let's just be clear. They're not our good friends. <laughs> yeah, you're a good point. Good point. <laughs> we went over and talked to Harvard Law. That's fine. Okay. I should have said Hillsdale College, <laughs> but, but, but instead I'm going to say Harvard Law. But 
let me read you this description and, and we can talk about it a little bit and then we can, we can explain what happened with Elon Musk. ESG grew out of investment philosophies clustered around sustainability and thereafter socially responsible investing. Early efforts focused on screening out, that is, excluding companies from portfolios largely due to environmental, social, or governance concerns, while more recently ESG has favorably distinguished companies that are making positive contributions to the elements of ESG premised on treating environmental and social issues as core elements of strategic positioning. While climate figures prominently in ESG discussions, there is no single list of ESG goals or examples, and ESG concepts often overlap. So let's go over the three letters. So E captures energy efficiencies, carbon footprints, greenhouse gas emissions, deforestation, biodiversity, climate change, and pollution mitigation, waste management, and water usage. The S covers labor standards, wages, and benefits. Work That's S, S stands for social, right? Yep, social, yep. Workplace and board diversity, racial justice, pay equity, human rights, talent management, community relations, privacy and data protection, health and safety, supply chain management, and other human capital and social justice issues. The G covers the governing of the E and the S categories, corporate board composition and structure, strategic sustainability, oversight and compliance, executive compensation, political contributions, and lobbying and bribery and corruption. I kind of call this the DLI index, the Democratic Loyalty Index. And you and you threw in the bribery and corruption, but that is self-evident. Also, the composition of the board, that includes the skin color or the sexual orientation of the board members, you know, goes into your score. So these scores, this ESG score, what does that mean? I mean, the higher the score, what does that do for a company? Well, there are hedge funds and investment funds out there that invest in ESG portfolios. And this has become really popular among the heirs of wealthy families. In many cases, people in their 20s that are wealthy, that, that were born into it and looking for a way so that they don't feel guilty about themselves and give purpose to their life and decide that they want to give money to these socially responsible companies. So these funds have developed ESG portfolios and the money goes into them. And what happens is it's completely objective. So to give you an example, ESG funds can end up say, we're not going to give any money to fossil fuel companies as an example. Therefore, energy companies are going to be starved of investment during a time when we have a shortage of energy. For example, look at what's happening in Texas and the grid in California. ESG serves to starve those companies. Then what they did was they decided to, S&P has an S&P 500 ESG index, and they removed Tesla from this index. S&P does credit ratings. So if you're getting removed from the index by S&P, that's essentially saying, well, this is not a good company to lend to. Whereas we all know Tesla is an extremely profitable company and also very good on the environment. So I went and looked at a blog by S&P to see what their reasoning was behind taking Tesla out of the index. 
And one of the things that I found interesting was they said they did a media and stakeholder analysis, a process that seeks to identify a company's current and potential future exposure to risks stemming from its involvement in a controversial incident. And it talked about these events with a couple, some claims of racial discrimination that they found in the media, which are unproven, uh, poor working conditions at Tesla's Fremont factory, which is actually, those stories are mostly planted by the UAW union who are trying to unionize Tesla, as well as its handling of the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration investigation after multiple deaths and injuries were linked to its autopilot vehicles. Now, the fact that they did a media analysis and the media loves to just trash Elon Musk from here to high heaven means that they're pulling out stories where the same things are happening at every company, but the media is just not reporting on it. So it shows how ridiculous this entire index is. They're using the mainstream media to build an ESG score. Yeah, now Musk, and again, this is a guy who has built his empire not only eliminating cars that burn carbon, he has the, the top electric car in the market, which is driving innovation in the industry. He also is sending people into space. He also is giving commercial internet to people who normally would not be able to get it, including half the country of Ukraine, okay? Half the country of Ukraine and Native American Indian reservations yes. all around the country here that don't have access to broadband. This guy is a corporate philanthropist of the highest order. But he came out and said the ESG movement has been weaponized by phony social justice warriors. This guy has become a target. And he has become a target because, first and foremost, because he's buying Twitter. And that is going to loosen their grip on power, their inability to control and shape the narrative in the public square is a threat to their power. And so he is a threat to them. You know, the thing about saying the Democrats are the party of division, I mean, that's obvious to everyone, but they took the gloves off with this sexual harassment charge. On April 4th, Tesla was valued at $1,145 per share. Right now, it's sitting at 663, Paul. I know you know that because we both own Tesla. And I can tell you that today, I'm going to be buying more Tesla. This is a great time to buy Tesla, I think. I encourage all listeners, you can tell them Connor Coughlin sent you. Go buy Tesla right now. Look, we are not giving uh, investment advice. There's no guarantee that a <laughs> stock will go up or down. We are not official investment advisors. However, we do like Tesla. It's a great company. And I feel like the, the just the constant media barrage on Elon Musk has hurt the company. And that's fulfilling the goals of the establishment and the Democratic Party. And let me take this a step further. What's happening to Elon Musk? What happened to Brett Kavanaugh? What happened to Donald Trump? What's happened to Joe Rogan? To Joe Rogan. What's happened to Madison Cawthorn? You name it. Let's talk about Cawthorn real quick, okay? Well, this is a, hold on. This is a low-scale communist revolution that's happening in this country. You don't know it when the Bolshevik revolution was happening in, in Russia in the years ahead of 1917. Nobody really thought that there was any kind of big revolution or change of government coming, but these Bolsheviks were just, you know, agitators, sort of like how BLM and Antifa is today. But this is happening. This is 
continue trying to destroy people that don't follow the party line is getting worse and worse. And I'm hoping they pick the wrong person with Elon Musk. But get back to Madison Cawthorn, who, you know, didn't quite make it. We, we're, we're sad about it. But. That's a great point, Paul, that the tactics that they're using. And so pay very close attention. So Cawthorn was defeated. And, you know, you could look at it. Connor Coughlin could look at it and say, this guy didn't have the maturity. He didn't have the statesmanship that you would want out of a congressman. But Paul Runyon might say, this is exactly what we need. Somebody who espouses conservative views that's not afraid to shake things up. Remember what Madison Cawthorn said a few weeks ago before the primary. He said something about cocaine-fueled orgies that he was invited to in Congress. Now, that on its face sounds outrageous, but I have a vision in my mind of of what Washington, D.C. is right now, and it looks an awful lot like the Capitol in the Hunger Games, right? You have these elites, they have their their little peccadilloes, they're completely different from those of us out here in, in District 12, or whatever the case may be. So you mean Mitch McConnell snorting coke off of hookers breasts cocaine mitch yeah things like that um (laughs) i don't even know the story on that i've heard he's got that nickname i don't know what the deal is but for cawthorn to say that you could just laugh it off and go that's absurd that's stupid and yet right after he said that pictures emerge other things emerge from his personal life you cannot go after the elites because they will destroy you cawthorn found that out And he was narrowly defeated in his primary by a North Carolina state senator who I hope will go on to win the seat there in in, uh, the 11th district in North Carolina. He is a he is a rhino. I will just let you know. I know the area pretty well. He's he's going to win. The district leans about 16 points Republican. Obviously, it's much better than having a Democrat. But but Chuck Edwards is not the fighter that we need. He's He's a company man. Okay, well, let's hope that he defeats the Democrat and we'll, we'll see. But the point is, is that he was better for the Washington elites than Madison Cawthorn because Cawthorn is too uncontrollable. And, you know, I guess you can't speak about the orgies and the, the cocaine or else they have to take you out. And, and they succeeded. I think Cawthorn's own stupidity hurt him a lot. Some of the things that he said. Uh, I liked a lot of the positions he took, certainly, but you have to be smarter than to say some of the things that he did. And and uh, he became a target when he made, I think, when he made that claim about the orgies, don't you? He did. He definitely became a target. Uh, the establishment was not happy with him. I still think he could have won his race had he not made some of the personal errors that turned a lot of people off as far as the taking the gun through TSA driving without a license and those kinds of things. But North Carolina is not California. No. You know, people have values down there. They do. And he, look, he's young and I'm sure we're going to, we have not heard the last of Madison Cawthorn, but let's hope that Elon Musk being the richest man in the world is able to survive these attacks. And it looks like he is going to be fighting and fighting and fighting and, and fighting for everybody with free speech and his reputation and his company and, Everybody would love to see Elon Musk get taken down. He's not just the Democratic establishment, but look at all the companies that he has hurt, like Ford and GM and that the big gas guzzler cars and Boeing, who, you know, was 
taking money from the government and SpaceX was able to save the taxpayer all kinds of money. There, he's got a lot of enemies now. So one of the thing, I mean, you know, he was a lifelong Democrat. And like a lot of his fellow African-Americans, he has shifted over to the Republican Party. He made this statement, though. I don't think it's this is not about calling out the Democratic Party for being the party of division. Again, we all see that now. This is about buying Twitter. This is and you mentioned his attacks on the unions control of big tech and the public square, as well as the immense power of the uh, government unions, as well as the teachers unions is the only thing that's keeping the Democratic Party afloat. You can see that their policies are horrible for America. So, Well, they're communists. I mean, unions are unions came out of the communist movement. That's right. I mean, let's just look at it. And Elon Musk is a devout capitalist. So, But his purchase or attempted purchase of Twitter is what has sparked all of this. Let's hope that he wins. Again, you, you, now, Paul got a little concerned when I told you to buy Twitter. You don't have to. I will be buying some. You said to buy Tesla. Tesla, you said. Tesla. No, don't buy Twitter. Don't, don't buy Twitter. When I said I was buying Tesla today, I mean it. I'm about to go buy some more. You can do what you want, but it's a great company, and we are all pulling for Elon Musk. When we come back, another ruling from the Fifth Circuit, and this one is pretty interesting. will take us back to that Dodd-Frank legislation of about a dozen years ago. We'll look at that ruling when we come back on The Midnight Ride. We are back. There's a lot to talk about from the past week. I think we've had record gas prices for 16 days in a row, record inflation. The president is over in Asia. Really a lot going on, but uh, it's sort of an obscure ruling by the Fifth Circuit that I think we want to look at, Paul, because Remember after the financial crisis of 2007, 2000, 2007, I think it was, President Obama got elected and there was a huge, I would say, mandate for the president to kind of get us out of this recession, but also maybe do a correction for some of the corporate excesses, you might say, that, that set up the Great Recession. Or, yeah, I guess we call it the Great Recession. Yep, it was. And they there was a lot of corporate fraud that happened uh, in the run-up to the financial crisis. As you know, the mortgage-backed securities, there were S&P and other credit rating agencies were giving bad mortgages really high credit ratings, even though they knew they weren't, so that they could sell those mortgages to other people. And essentially, the entire system blew up as a result of a lot of these shenanigans that were going on. And so and so this past week the Security and Exchange Commission, those are the guys that regulate our financial sector, they received a unwelcome news, I guess you could say, from the Fifth Circuit Court. Why don't you tell us about that? Exactly. So after 2008, the Dodd-Frank Act was passed. It was huge supported by Elizabeth Warren, by Bernie Sanders, um, by all of the Democrats. So Obama had the presidency and he had full control of Congress. And in order to help the SEC bring a lot of these financial fraud cases to manage them and enforce them, they brought them before they were allowed to, instead of having a jury trial, which is what's normally done, they were able to bring cases before their own internal judges and institute penalties against defendants. And these internal judges are called administrative law judges. 
Are these real judges? No, they're not real judges. They're like, they work for the SEC and they're just, uh. they're, exactly. So there was a case by somebody named George Jarkasi and a company called Patriot 28 LLC who sued the SEC in 2011 after the agency imposed a $300,000 fine and other punishments in a securities fraud case. He had tried to go to the district court and was told that he could not be have the case there. It had to be done by one of these internal administrative law judges. And he said that this was unconstitutional. He said it was a violation of the Seventh Amendment to the Constitution. The Seventh Amendment says, in suits at common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of a trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Okay, so the, the right of a trial by jury shall be preserved. Exactly. Just to play devil's advocate here, because remember, 2007, they must have had a huge backlog of these cases. There were a lot of people involved in these mortgage securities and, and all of this. I mean, could they have said, well, listen, that was out of necessity. I mean, if we have to do jury trials, we will not be able to, there will be a backlog in cases. Is that fair to say? I think it is fair to say, but that alone does not take away your constitutional right. That's That almost sounds to me like this tried and true method of using a crisis to take away people's constitutional rights, whether that's COVID, whether that's 9-11, whether it's the financial crisis, it's used to give the government more power. And I don't see how an individual that's charged by the SEC can get a fair judgment on their guilt or innocence by having an internal law judge that's employed by the SEC making the decision without having a jury of their peers. So I understand that the court court system may be overwhelmed, but I don't think that that negates the fact of somebody's constitutional right. So Judge Jennifer Walker Elrod wrote in the majority opinion that the SEC violated the Seventh Amendment's right to a jury trial by bringing defendants before in-house judges and allowing the agency to act as both prosecutor and judge. Uh, Congress also unconstitutionally delegated power to the SEC to act as a legislative body, Elrod wrote. Quote, we the people are the fountainhead of all government power. Through the Constitution, the people delegated some of that power to the federal government so that it would protect rights and promote the common good. But that accountability evaporates if a person or entity other than Congress exercises legislative power. So essentially, she's saying that the SEC was given way too much power here and she's ruled that these administrative law judges are unconstitutional. And this is probably going to be a case that winds up at the Supreme Court. But at the midnight ride, as you and I have discussed so many times, we get really passionate about these constitutional issues because people and politicians tend to try to chip away, chip away at our Constitution. And if it's small, if it's at the SEC here, if it starts, when's the next crisis going to come that's going to say that, there's just too many things happening that criminal trials can't be seen before a jury. I mean, where does it end, right? So it's like we have to stop it when you see a constitutional violation, even if it hurts the courts. And this may cause some problems, but uh, I'm a constitutionalist and I think we need to stick to it. Well, I do too. I, and I'll be honest with you. I 
maybe somewhat like a lot of our listeners don't fully understand everything, all of the enforcement actions that the SEC is taking or why they need administrative adjudication. It sounds like there's a lot of cases out there. I think the critics would say that the Fifth Circuit has just essentially made it so that only the most egregious violations in terms of the amount of money of the fraud will get prosecuted. Otherwise, they're going to need to appoint a lot more judges. I mean, just look at all the fraud that came with with uh, the American Rescue Plan and the pay- Paycheck Protection Program. I mean, everybody and their mother was out there stealing from the federal government. And I do think we need a mechanism to rein in fraud. It'll be interesting to see because, again, I, this is something that's been going on now for 12 or 13 years, but that was the Obama administration. That was the Democratic Party. And now, again, we have Joe Biden also with a Democratic Congress. And there's no question that they ignore the Constitution at every turn, whether it's the Centers for Disease Control issuing eviction moratoriums or something like this. The Constitution is a very inconvenient thing for them. And there is something to be said for jury trials, Paul. Uh, There is. And I have to say, I think the argument that many of the critics are making is not an unsound argument. There is a lot of fraud in this country, and we have to enforce these rules, and we need to protect the American people from scams and frauds and securities violations and insider trading, and all of that is really important. But we've got to also balance it with the Constitution. And here's an idea. I mean, maybe, do you think that it's possible to set up some sort of federal financial crimes court? like with a jury trial and everything. I don't want to say I like big government getting better, but the court system is different than the executive branch. I mean, to set up a a legitimate court system with an entire procedure for this type of thing might not be a bad idea. It's almost like the uh, FISA court for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That's a whole separate, I mean, got its own issues. We can talk about that on another episode. But Or the immigration courts, right? I mean, they have... Or the immigration courts, right? So maybe you set up, maybe it becomes another arm of the judicial branch to hear these cases instead of having the executive branch do it. Well, there's one... Yeah, I like the idea of people who are not political. These are judges and juries that rule based on the law and not out of political affiliation. I do like that idea. There would be a huge backlog at first, potentially, but maybe that is a good idea because we need a judiciary that is not beholden to political interests because I think what you find there or what you might find there is that certain elites and, you know, political people who are politically connected may be able to skirt punishment. The bottom line is though, we- we Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden. The bottom, of the, and we, we probably can expect something coming in, out of that, by the way, in the next couple of weeks. But we definitely don't want fraudsters and you know the uh, Gordon Geckos of the world getting off scot free because the, now there has to be a jury trial, and and it's not worth the trouble because there's a, a backlog like the immigration courts. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. This is a this is not an easy solution, but I think that our judicial branch needs to be expanded as a whole because I do think that it's really hard. People do have a right to speedy trials and defendants in these SEC cases will also have a right to a speedy trial. 
just like they have a right to a jury trial and a right to due process. And they need to get heard, and we need to make sure that these courts can handle it. So something, something's got to get done. We spend so much money just expanding the size of government with all these new agencies and the EPA and this infrastructure bill with, with all of these new programs for tree equity and everything else. And, and it's the court system that seems to get left out. Let's remember that the, the judicial branch is lit that one thing standing between us and tyranny. That's the ultimate check and balance on politicians and bureaucrats that, that are getting out of control. Right now, the, those nine justices in D.C. and the circuit courts and, and all of the courts around the nation, they are the last line of defense. They are what is, they're sort of like the, the Jenga cube that is kind of holding this republic together. And we absolutely depend on them to maintain their impartiality and their judicial integrity. And uh, by the way, you mentioned speedy trials. One one person that I think deserves a very speedy trial that we need to get into a courtroom as soon as possible is Mr. Michael Sussman. If you know who that is, great. If you don't, you're going to hear when we come back a trial that I think needs to happen as soon as possible to get everything out into the open. And you'll hear about that next on the Midnight Ride podcast. We're back, and uh, I got to tell you, I got scolded by Mr. Runyon during the break who told me, hey, Connor, uh, Sussman is under trial. That's the whole point. Michael Sussman is under trial right now for lying to the FBI. Now, this is not exactly the same thing as the cases that we saw against Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who lied to the government or whatever. This, this lie is very material to a great fraud that was perpetrated on the entire country, really. And we're talking about Russiagate and the Russia collusion. And who is Michael Sussman, Paul? So Michael Sussman is an attorney, uh, an ally of the Clinton campaign. He was working for Perkins Coie, I believe, at the time of when all of this was happening. And uh, apparently was doing a good deal of opposition research on the Trump campaign at the time. And essentially what happened is in 2016, he went to the FBI and he said, Hey, he went to a guy by the name of James Baker at the FBI. And he said, Hey, James, I've got this, this thing here, uh, this dossier that was put together. And I'm really concerned about it. It shows Trump with all these connections to Russia. It's got this, this bank called, uh, this thing called alpha bank that's pinging Trump servers. I don't know what's going on. And I'm not here on behalf of any client or anything, but but I'm just here doing my patriotic duty to let the FBI know about this. I'm just here as a, as a concerned citizen, basically. Exactly, a concerned citizen. And that is what started the entire investigation and the whole Russia hoax that ended up out in the public. So they had employed Christopher Steele, Fusion GPS, who is another organization working for the Clinton campaign, had a former intelligence officer named Christopher Steele put this dossier together uh, that had all these things on Trump. It was a whole file of opposition research ranging from this Alpha Bank incident that I told you about to him peeing on prostitutes to Russian intelligence to things happening at Trump Tower, you name it. But it later turned out this entire thing was 
was fake and it was a fraud. Now, Sussman is on, on trial for lying to the FBI because he was saying that he was a concerned citizen just doing it out of the goodness of his heart when, in fact, his client was the Hillary Clinton campaign. At least that's what the government is alleging and, and prosecutor John Durham. Remember that some of the people associated with the Donald Trump campaign were were charged with things like tax evasion or lying to the FBI. These were things that were not related to the alleged collusion with Russia, but the FBI and, and others charged these people, like, like I said, like General Michael Flynn, in an effort to get them to roll over on President Trump. This is somewhat like that in that they do they are trying to get as the first person indicted by this Durham probe they are trying to get him to give up more people and, and get to the core of this corruption however this lie is directly related to the dossier to the whole probe and so i think it's fair game paul it is fair game but this is really interesting because a lot of people were saying that sussman should have pled uh, guilty or doing, because the evidence against him is really overwhelming. However, he's being tried in a liberal area in DC. And I think he's taking his chances that he's going to have some liberal Trump hating jurors that are going to let him off the hook. So that's kind of where the trial stands right now. But here's where things get interesting because during this trial, a lot of information is coming out about how high all of this went. Can I just ask you a question real quick? Yeah. If he did plead, I mean, this is a felony charge, right? Or is it not? I don't know. What what happens? I'm not sure. I'm not an attorney, so I'm not really sure how he would plea. If it would, he would plea to a felony or he would plea to a misdemeanor. I would imagine that a conviction for lying to the FBI could affect your standing with the bar and your ability to practice law. Maybe that that maybe that's why he didn't do it. Well, completely. Yeah, you never know. Um, although if he gets convicted, he's likely going to jail. So uh, once you know you get convicted in court and without a plea deal, then all kinds of risk opens up to you. But what was interesting about this trial and how things are opening up is that Robbie Mook. You remember that name? It sounds like somebody with the the Clinton campaign. I can't place him. So he was actually the Clinton campaign manager. That's right. Yeah, in 2016. Now, he... Pretty young guy, right? Yeah, he was, he was subpoenaed by, in this trial, uh, as a witness about what was happening. And during cross-examination, some interesting things happened. And I'm going to read the transcript, uh, part of the transcript. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, Connor, because I think this is really blowing some things wide open here. So uh, I'm going to start here. Okay, and this is this is done by uh, one of the prosecutors for John Durham is asking these questions. Okay, in connection with the general focus on Mr. Trump and Russia, did there come a time when you learned of potential links between the Trump organization, Mr. Trump's business, and a Russia bank called Alpha Bank? I did, yes, I was briefed on that. Approximately when were you first briefed on that, if you remember? I honestly can't recall. Who participated in the briefing, if you remember? Myself, Mark Elias, Jen Palmieri, Jake Sullivan, and John Podesta. There might have been others, but those are the ones I definitely recall being there. 
He also admitted that the Clinton campaign was focused on Trump's relationship with Russia before the summer of 2016. So here's another question. In the summer of 2016, was Mr. Trump's relationship with Russia something that the campaign focused on? Yes. I mean, it was frankly something we were focused on before that time, but absolutely. And once you learned about it, the Trump-Russia allegations, you started discussing with the campaign whether the campaign should affirmatively push it in the media, right? Correct. And you had that discussion with Mr. Sullivan. That's Jake Sullivan, who's currently the national security advisor. Correct. By the way, the guy Elias is, as we've talked about here on the Midnight Ride, representing Black Lives Matter now. Go ahead. Exactly. So, correct. With Mr. Podesta, just to be clear, this is what I recall those people. Correct. Okay, you had a discussion with Mr. Sullivan? Yes, I recall. Yes. Uh, whether to push it to the media? Right? Correct. With Ms. Palmieri? Correct. With Mr. Podesta? Correct. But in any event, the decision to provide this to the media was authorized by the Clinton campaign. We authorized a staff member of the campaign to provide it to the media. Uh, regarding Hillary Clinton, Mook said, question, Mr. Mook, before the break, you had testified there was a conversation in which you told Ms. Clinton about the proposed plan to provide the Alpha Bank allegations to the media. Is that correct? Correct. And what was her response? All I remember is that she agreed with the decision. Did you or anyone else from the campaign, to your knowledge, direct or authorize Mr. Sussman to go to the FBI on behalf of the campaign? To my knowledge, no. So he's obviously protecting himself a little bit there. And this is not uncommon for the sort of campaign side and the sort of dark arts of opposition research to be separated for plausible deniability. But you clearly have, you've got the campaign having a fraudulent piece of information that has not been verified, has not been investigated, and they're affirmatively pushing it out to the media. And Mook has said it right there that it's happened. So the fact that he's opened this up, I, I can start seeing more interviews now with Elias and Palmieri and Sullivan and Podesta and even Clinton herself. This is what's completely interesting about this. Was this after she lost? Or was this given to, it was before the election? This is before the election. Yeah. So it looks like they perpetrated this entire fraud about Trump, then sort of had it all packaged up nicely, and then gave it to the FBI. And the FBI was investigating, realized it wasn't real. But the Clinton campaign gave it to the media regardless and of course, their friends in the media ran with it without any kind of elaboration and started talking, uh, quoting uh, anonymous sources. And the rest is history. I mean, this thing was drip, drip, drip for two years. I mean, two years of Donald Trump's presidency were essentially gone over something that was completely fake. And it's looking now that at the highest levels of the Clinton campaign, people were aware of this. This is just very disturbing. Very disturbing. And and it's it's shocking. Jonathan Turley had an article over the weekend in The Hill. And by the way, on Saturday, because I follow Twitter, and, and by the way, you can follow us on Twitter, at Midnight Ride Pod, Hillary for Prison was the number one trending topic in the United States on Saturday, Paul. Turley writes in The Hill that... The trial. Well, I don't think Twitter now with Elon Musk with Elon Musk taking over. I don't think they're suppressing those hashtags anymore like they used to. Maybe not. Uh, Turley writes 
the trial of Sussman crossed a critical threshold on Friday when a key witness uttered the name Hillary Clinton in conjunction with the false collusion claims. For Democrats and many in the media, Hillary Clinton has long held a Voldemort-like status as, quote, she who must not be named. In scandals, the mere mention of Clinton's name sent shockwaves through Washington because in past scandals, the Clintons have always evaded direct responsibility, whether it was Whitewater or the Whitewater documents being discovered outside the family quarters, bearing Hillary Clinton's fingerprints, et cetera. Oh, there's Arkansas state troopers. There was the death of Vince Foster. There were tons of things that, that they just were able to weasel their way out of. And Turley goes on in July of 2016, then CIA Director Brennan briefed President Obama on Hillary's alleged plan to tie Trump to Russia, quote, as a means of distracting the public from her use of a private email server. And it turns out, that that was true. And so this testimony is very groundbreaking. And you know what? She should go to prison for this. If, if this all is true, um, this trial of Sussman, it's not looking good for Mr. Sussman. Uh, and he not only might get disbarred, but he could be headed for prison. And you know what I sort of feel like is that there's a lot of people, you know, the ultra MAGA types and, and all these folks, they want to see a lot of people thrown in jail, but certainly Hillary. And the leftists, they want this all to go away. But I think there needs to be people thrown in jail for this, because as you point out, the will of the people was subverted. Donald Trump, whether you like him or not, let's admit the fact that he never got a chance to be president. And despite that, he accomplished a, a hell of a lot in a, in a uh, presidency that was hounded for the first two years by these false allegations, then the sham impeachment, et cetera. The lengths that they went to to cut him off at the knees, this Sussman bombshell could lead to basically carrying out justice, which I think would be good for our electoral process, Paul. I think so, too. I'm not, I'm not a vengeful person. I'm not saying, talking about who I want to go to jail or who I think needs to go to jail. But I will say one thing. This opens up a whole can of worms where, you know, my guess is that when they were trying to do a plea agreement with Sussman. They were trying to get him to name people from the campaign. And, and I probably, you know, as maybe if, if it's like it is in the movies, I have no idea, but he was probably getting pressure to stay quiet and to just, you know, take one for the team by going to trial. You know, now it's all coming out. And I'm curious with Mr. Durham, how high he's going to be able to go with this, and are they going to be able to find a direct connection between the Clinton campaign and Hillary Clinton and Sussman and feeding it to the FBI? Because I think it's apparent to everybody that Sussman was not doing this as a concerned citizen. He was being directed to do this by somebody, and how high does that go? And that's what's going to have to be figured out. And I think the investigation's ongoing. This is just one of the first steps. There's some other indictments, some other people getting looked at. I wouldn't be surprised if people like Jake Sullivan and others and John Podesta, uh, turns out that they had knowledge of this. So this is not going away. And let's also mention that when the Republicans take control of the House in just a few months, I have no doubt that there's going to be a committee stood up 
to investigate this as well. So this is not the last of uh, we're hearing about this. The Sussman trial is essentially potentially the end of the beginning. Uh, you, know, you know the scene, <laughs> the scene in The Godfather where where Tom Hagen goes and he visits the prison and and uh, he says, "Don't worry anything, Frankie." You know, he basically gives this story about how the old you know Romans or whatever would would kill themselves. You know, and the and the guy kills himself, right? I mean, he 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 had agreed to turn state witness against Corleone, and and he gets a visit from the consigliere, and 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 the guy Vince Foster's himself. I I wouldn't. <laughs> it just reminds me of, of this scenario because definitely some people talked to him and said you cannot say anything against Hillary. I mean, the, the power circles here run very very deep. I don't know very much about Alpha Bank or whatever the allegations were, but I do know that if I... I can give you it. Well, really quick on Alpha Bank, it's it was a Moscow-based bank. And apparently, according to, you know, what turned out to be fake, it had a, there was a server that was irregularly pinging a server registered to the New York-based Trump organization. So Alpha Bank was pinging Trump. And that was what was brought up, that it was some sort of collusion, like Trump is getting money, he's on the payroll of the Russians to, to do something like that. So if I, if I call the police right now and I say that Paul Runyon is involved in a child sex trafficking ring and I just saw somebody, I just saw somebody bring a, a young girl into his house right now, they're going to send a SWAT team or they're going to send people to your house and uh, they're going to find out that I lied, right? Yeah, and you're going to go to jail. And I would make sure that you did, but I know you would never lie about me like that. Yeah, well, if I did that to somebody else, whatever. <laughs> so the point is this. I mean, you accuse somebody of a crime, and you sick the law enforcement on them. And you know it's fake. But you knew it was a lie. You knew it was fake. So that's what this is. And we're not talking about Sussman. Mr. Mook said that Hillary ordered them to release that to the press, and Sussman went to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who, by the way, had some of those people like Peter Strzok and some of these other fine public servants who were more than happy to investigate the claims. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you knowingly give false information to law enforcement, that seems like it should be a felony. Yep, and I believe it is a felony. So that's which is why Hillary for prison was the number one trending topic on Twitter in America on Saturday. Can't wait. Are the lock her up chants going to come back again? <laughs> this is, the, you know, put her on the stand. Maybe that's coming. And uh, hopefully, you know, we can get, listen, I'm, I think everybody knows, uh, you know, I do think that Donald Trump was a pretty good president. I'm not a huge fan of the guy, but you got to understand, I mean, a lot of his actions between the November of 2020 loss and January 6th, you know, that's after having to deal with this fraud. Imagine your name being dragged through the mud for two years, a sham impeachment, all of this stuff. These people will stop at nothing. They destroy all of the institutions. And I think this Sussman case and the, and the testimony of Mr. Mook gives America a little bit of hope, Paul. I mean, this is not about Donald Trump. This is about the evil, vile corruption of Hillary Clinton and those of her ilk. It is. And I think this is going to come out. I think we're going to hear, I think there's going to be more cases, more trials, more invest investigations. We've also got the Hunter Biden potential indictment coming. There's a grand jury impaneled right now. 
So uh, we're going to see what level of corruption was there too. So things are all moving along. This is no longer the, quote, right-wing conspiracy theories or Russian disinformation. This is now in court, in grand juries, in trials happening in the U.S. justice system. So it's a whole different level and resolution is coming one way or the other. Well, if you're going about your lives and just spending time with your family and trying to end to trying to make ends meet during this time of Bidenflation, you don't have time to keep up with all the court cases and rulings. Fortunately, you have Paul and I here on the Midnight Ride, so you take an hour every weekend and, and we'll bring you all the issues that we think are threats to our republic and to our constitution. We hope that you are enjoying this podcast and are spreading the word to some of your friends and fellow patriots because uh, we're seeing a gradual increase in our listenership. We want to thank you for that. Please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and tell as many patriots and friends as possible about the Midnight Ride podcast. Paul, you want to close us out? Well, I'd just like to say, too, that we really are appreciative of everything that that our listeners have done to, to listen to us, to support us on social media, to tell their friends, to keep us growing. Connor and I care immensely about this country. That's why we're doing this. We care about the Constitution. We care about your freedoms. We care about our ability to, for every American to make a great life for themselves without shady characters and big government getting in their way. That's why we do this every day. We're here for, for you guys, for all of you, and we love it, and we're going to keep doing it. So that's that's really what I... Really just wanted to get that off my chest. We love all of you. We love our country. And we love the men and women who are out there tonight defending freedom and defending our republic. And and next week, we'll have a special edition on the Midnight Ride as we honor those. The ultimate sacrifice for freedom, a special Memorial Day edition. And we hope you'll join us then until next week. For Paul, I am Connor. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Midnight Ride podcast.